Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's Lounge at the CWE, our brand new podcast being brought to you by the Center for Women at Emory. I'm Chanel Tanner, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Natalie Turin. Hello. And Tia Williams. Hi, everyone. So uh, this week's episode, we're going to discuss what things we're doing to sustain us during the quarantine, the new hot gossip, and our topic of the day, which is on F having it all. And lastly, we got some questions in from Emory students who want our advice on how, how to handle living at home with your parents during this quarantine. So let's jump right into it. So for our first segment, let's get it started. The question is, what you're watching, what you're reading, and what you're listening to? So let's start with you, Tia. What you watching, what you reading, what you listening to? What's up? (laughs) Well, the quarantine has kept me from like really wanting to read much for pleasure. So I've been watching a lot of things. And I just binge the Umbrella Academy. I was really against it at first, but then I gave it a whirl and binged it in three days. There's two seasons of it. And now that that's gone, I'm back on Person of Interest and I'm listening to Michelle Obama's new podcast. That's a good one. Natalie, what you watching? What you reading? What you listening to? So, okay. I watched a whole series called This Way Up. It is British and it's about this Irish woman who um, has a nervous breakdown and it's like immediately afterwards and it's kind of like a dramedy, but more so comedy. And she's also an English language teacher and it's, it's really good. I really liked it. I watched the whole thing in one night. I am reading a book by Otessa Mosfeg uh, called Death in Her Hands. It's her latest release. I've read her other books and they're really they're quick reads, um, my year of rest and relaxation and a few other ones. Um, but this book is about um, an older woman in Maine who comes across a note, like essentially saying that they found a dead body and her name was Magda and you'll never find her. And the woman mm. becomes obsessed with finding out who, who Magda was and what happened. Mm. And then I'm listening to, I listen to a lot of podcasts from Q Code recently. They're all fiction podcasts, but they got some famous people on them. Um, Tessa Thompson leads one of them called The Left Right Game. They're like mystery. I'm not really usually a science fiction person, but they're kind of science fiction mysteries. Remy Malik has one. Cole Sprouse has one called Baraska. And they're they're really, really well produced. They're not cheesy uh, fiction stories. And so I really liked all of those. So that's what I've been up to. Q code? Q code. The the letter Q and then the word code. And they have like maybe five or six. The latest one, uh, the latest podcast is with Demi Moore. Demi Moore. So. Huh. Yeah. Cole Sprouse. That's like Zach and Cody. Sweet life, right? I think so. like, Like super woke and like, what? Like no one knew that that was what he was going to turn into, but I, I like that kid. Well, one um, of them plays on Riverdale right now. I'm not sure which one. So they're still uh, very active. I just didn't know. Cause I don't watch Riverdale. Got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so for me, what am I watching? I'm still watching black is King. 
I just think it was an incredibly beautiful visual album. We could probably do another podcast all about it because y'all know I'm secretly in the beehive. Um, I try to say I'm not, but I, I kind of am. But what makes me know I'm not though, is I don't think that Beyonce is above any kind of criticism or critique. So I can see um, what's critical, but I thought it was a beautiful album. And as an African-American, it just um, made me, you know, proud of the culture that that we come from. And I just remember years ago, Beyonce saying she wishes she was um, Latina because she really appreciates their culture. And so to see her, her own growth and, you know, learning about the cultures in which we came from and being able to represent that um, in a really beautiful way. And she was really young when she said that, like 19 or something. So give her a lot of space. Um, what am I reading? Similar to you, Tia, it's been really hard to read during the quarantine for pleasure other than Twitter. Um, but I do like audiobooks. And so I'm actually reading for the first time. Don't judge me. I feel like this is Black woman blasphemy, but I've actually never read Octavia Butler. So I am reading um, Parable of the Sower and I am so impressed. And so I kind of listened to it during some of my daily walks and it just feels like she wrote it yesterday. It feels so incredibly timely and it makes me understand now when people say black women are from the future, what they mean by that. So I am, I'm going to cheat and call that my read, even though I'm listening to it. That's what I'm reading. And I am listening to, um, I'm actually also listening to podcasts. I feel like this is such a grown up answer to say, like, why didn't I pick music? I am listening to CWE Quarantunes whenever that comes out. I do listen to that. But my listen would be the new um, Girl Trek podcast, the Black History Bootcamp that just started back up in August. So that's what I'm listening to. I'm having a blast while doing it. Um, yesterday's episode was about uh, the one I listened to was on Nat Turner in his rebellion. And I just feel like I have my ancestors whispering in my ear as I take my daily walks. So that that's me. What is the hot gossip? Tell me everything. All right. Our next section, segment, whatever we want to call this, is tell me the hot gossip. So give me the 411. Give me the 411. What you should know about the Center for Women is that we love mean girls. Well, Natalie and I are a little bit obsessed with mean girls. Yeah, so we're always it. looking for ways. <laughs> Tia loves it too. It's just, she's frightened for y'all. But we will always sneak in a mean girl reference when we can. And we tried to name all the segments after mean girls, but we weren't able to make that work. But couldn't make world. fetch happen. We couldn't make fetch. Oh, we should have named something that. Yeah, I forgot about that one. But anyway, the hot gossip. So we have a few segments to talk about. Um, I want to get us started. I picked for my hot gossip today is the Cardi and Meg The Stallion release of their new song and video for WAP. So if y'all haven't heard of this, which I mean, you must be under a rock, but the song is um, very, very sexual. It is an acronym for wet ass uh, private part. I'll say that. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it is um, very grown and sexy to say the least. The clean version um, 
actually almost got banned from YouTube. So the first one that they that they tried to submit to YouTube, they were like, we can't, we not, we're not gonna air that. The chorus um, has words like the on the clean version, wet and gushy. Um, so just just so we know. So when you get to the video, it's um, they're walking through like a, a sex house. There's shout outs to little Kim's iconic pose where she's like posing squatted legs open. There's a shout out to the the um, the black coat classic baps. And you can even like the, the release, you have like the Cardi and Meg with their hair done like Holly Berry um, for, for baps. There's gold statues with women's butts and breasts and all kinds of cameos. Normani is in there. There's twerking, glorious twerking. These women are skilled. It was a joy to watch. And um, for the most part, the responses from women have been quite supportive. Um, you have, you know, other women rappers shouting it out like Remy Ma and people like just really excited about it. There was some um, pushback about Kylie. Kylie Jenner being in there and a lot of folks who kind it's of were like pushback. It was a whole lot. Of pushback. <laughs> it was 64,000 signatures in an online position <laughs> petition, which would be humiliating. It sounds like, you know, being in high school or not elementary school and, you know, some mean kid was like, we signed a petition to, to say you smell or something like that. <laughs> like that's kind of what it feels. And like she's not me. actually in the official video. She's only in the censored video. Oh, that I didn't know. Well, she did have quite um, a feature where she walks down the hallway and, you know, it's all about Kylie for a minute. So people were like, why are they here? You know, the Kardashians again, here we go. Um, so, I mean, I think I get it from um, an advertising standpoint, right? Like Kylie Jenner is a huge star and that kind of can open it up to a lot of you know, a, di a different audience who would be checking and standing for Kylie. But other folks felt like Meg is a pretty big deal. Cardi B is a is a, a pretty big deal. They didn't need that. But um, that was some pushback. And it ended up producing a very interesting dynamic in that then we got all of these images of Viola Davis being <laughs> screenshot into the video. Um, and she's been real, like, a good sport about it. She's been like retweeting the videos and being like, who did this? And, um, you know, it's, it's pictures of Annalise or videos of Annalise Keating dancing drunk from um, How to Get Away with Murder. So I really, I really enjoyed that. Have y'all seen that? The Viola Davis insert? I've only seen the steal. I've not seen video of it. Like I have not dancing. seen the video. Yeah. So like in the part of the video where they're like peeking in the room and you see different women dancing, when you peek into one of the rooms, it's it's Annalise Keating dancing <laughs> in her office, like all offbeat and stuff. And so that's been really interesting. So I guess it's like, instead of Kylie, we should have had Annalise. I don't know why of all people they named that. I mean, of course, the more serious critiques were like, you know, what about little Kim? Like, but the, I think they paid good homage to her, but I could have, I could have seen like a nice like walkthrough there. So that was funny. Um, and then here come the dudes. I mean, can we just have a moment to be sexual and free? It's like, just say you don't like women and go. Like, they really hate us, especially Black women, especially free Black women when we're declaring our own sexuality. So have y'all seen any of that pushback? Because I definitely have been like rolling my eyes, especially when CeeLo Green 
tried to hop out there and say anything about the video being inappropriate. And I'm like, wait, I thought somebody that was accused of sexual assault just said something. I'm, I'm just, this man actually has said that it's not possible to sexually assault a woman who's unconscious. Like that, that's not possible. What? Y'all don't remember that? Oh, that's why he had to go off. What was the show he was on? The Voice? I'm shaking my <laughs> head. I never saw oh, the voice, so I didn't know much about that. I had seen people's pushback for what he said, but didn't know like his backstory about sexual assault, though. Yeah. And he actually, I also I don't have a lot of men that I follow, so I didn't see most of that, but I have heard about the pushback of the WAP video from men. Yeah, they out here. They always got something to say, and it's like, I can't believe it in hip hop. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna talk about some of the songs, but we know the men in hip hop are incredibly sexual and graphic. But when it's the women's turn, now it's a problem, and we're setting bad examples for girls and for other women. So anyway, that's my hot topic. I just think men need to leave us alone and let us be. All right, Tia, what so- you got? I was going to bring up um, the new trailer that just dropped for the Fred Hampton movie. It's called Yay! Judas and the Black Messiah. And so it's Shaka King directed. It's being produced by Ryan Coogler. And it's starring Lakeith Stanfield and Ryan Acuglia. And mm-hmm. basically it's about the rise and the assassination of Fred Hampton. And so it's inspired by true events. And it's one person, I think... Lakeith Stanfield plays the person that infiltrates the Black Panther Party. I mean, as a black person and um, helps the FBI assassinate Fred Hampton. And so I'm really excited about it. I've always been interested in the Black Black Panther movement. Um, And yeah, and I really love Ryan Coogler and what he does with films. I absolutely love Fred Hampton um, as a person who's like my most salient identity is actually my class background growing up working class working poor like he's just a, a symbol that I've gravitated towards um, well not a symbol a person a historical figure that I've gravitated towards and I've always been fascinated by the way that he was beginning to mobilize both poor black and poor white people. He was really doing something incredibly special. And I think that that's what made him a target for the FBI. I mean, people say this about Dr. King and you know, like it's like once they start talking about class, that's when they really are like, oh, we have to do something. But Fred Hampton was somebody who really had it. He was super, just incredible. And so they had to find a way to take him down. So I'm just, very excited that his story is being um, highlighted and remembered. And I just pray that they do a good job with it. I mean, I'm really excited about the people that they've put on to make the story, but sometimes our stories go left. And I just really want this one to, to, to be, to be right. Because I think in this moment in our nation's um, history, this historical moment that we're in seeing how class unification can happen, is just really mm-hmm. important. So, that's a good one. And I think it's also not that it necessarily goes left sometimes. I think it also does not go deep enough. Like a lot of us know a lot of stories about things, but people only scratch the surface and it's the same story told over and over again, but they don't go further into like 
what made them do this, like their full background. Yeah. yeah. So, and I wonder sometimes, if like, the, the casting is weird or the casting gets wrong. You always hope like when you want to hear this story that you have the actors who are, you know, primed to like really give it the st- story, t- tell the story in the way that it deserves to be told. Because sometimes that's mm-hmm. even a disappointment when the casting is weird. Or you're like, I, I don't really see it. Or so that's kind of. You know. Yeah. And I do There's wonder. There's two coming up now. Sorry, go Chanel. No, no, no. Just if we put too much pressure on black stories or stories of people who haven't really been told often, if we put too much pressure for them to do too much. And like maybe what we need is a lot of stories of Fred Hampton so that one doesn't have to do everything. So that's all I was going to say. But go ahead, Tia. Oh, I was just going to bring up, like, I'm really um, interested in what happens with the Whitney Houston one that's supposed to happen. And then the one with Aretha oh, Franklin that. that's supposed to happen. Yeah. I oh, didn't get yeah, to with see, Jennifer Hudson. Right. The one with Jennifer Hudson for Aretha Franklin. Um, and I don't, and I just saw the one about Whitney Houston, um, but I don't remember who's putting it out. I think they may have I announced it on her birthday. Does. Cause I I still will watch that new edition story that BET did. Whew, that was so good. And then the Bobby Brown one, I could watch that every time it go it comes on. So I'm hoping whoever did that will do uh, Whitney Houston's because it was it she deserves an entire. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Did you what? Did you I watch like the one about the Clark sisters? I did not, but I but it's All on right. my list. It's on my list. I'm okay. gonna watch it one day. Okay. <laughs> All right, Natalie, what you got? Did y'all read, there was a profile in the New York Times this week, maybe two days ago, on Portia Williams from The Real Housewives of Atlanta. And it was a really, really, it was a really great profile of her. And I've I've watched parts of The Real Housewives series. You know, I kind of watch it, you know, when you're in a hotel room and you get those channels. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have good cable at home. And it was this incredible profile of her, uh, her engagement in civil rights protests in chronicling, you know, her life growing up being the granddaughter of Hosea Williams, attending her first protest with him when she was five and then sort of playing this, you know, real housewife, you're you're kind of playing a character, right? She was seen as sort of a young and more immature character. Right. Um, And then more recently, right. She was arrested at uh, a protest in, in, in Louisville. Um, uh, fighting for justice for Breonna Taylor. And so it was like, it's about been about her transformation and her growth, I guess, as a, as a, as a person who was kind of playing a character on a, on a show, on a reality show. And it was, it was a really, really good profile. I feel like you would expect, you know, major newspapers to, I don't know, not give her, not take her seriously uh, just because newspapers, I think, have a, have a history of, of doing that, especially with women and women of color, and especially somebody who has the role of a real housewife. And I don't know, I've just been thinking about the real housewives lately, like Bethany Frankel, the former real housewives of New York. She made that skinny girl margarita business. Oh, yeah, yeah. She, in the pandemic, in the midst of the pandemic, she procured all kinds of PPE for New York city hospitals. And there was a huge profile on her in the same paper about the role that she played in this black market and um, the lengths that she went to, to, to fight for her city. And so similarly, this article and this profile shares that story of Portia. And, you know, if you read the comments, there are people who are kind of scoffing, like this is the same Portia who very infamously thought that (laughs) the round railroad was a real railroad. Um, 
but I don't know. I don't, I don't really falter for that. If based on, you know, what we, what we learned about in school, it makes sense that they, you know, it would have been glossed over that this, this was a metaphor. Um, but I don't know. Cause she's also really she, hilarious. She is, she's from Atlanta. Right. And we, we kind of, I mean, this is the same city that has stone mountain. Yes. And yes. Confederacy. So she may have not even learned about it at all. No, in her no. And only- and, yeah. Yeah. So. In fact, they chronicle uh, the the story of her attending the protest with her grandfather. I believe she said that they they were there were KKK members throwing rocks at them and calling them horrible words. And so it was a really rad article. Also, they they gave a shout out to probably the most hilarious comment that she's known for, in addition to the serious stuff, which was when she told uh, Eva, her castmate Eva, that she looked like a thumb. <laughs> <laughs> Insult. Poor Eva. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it was a, it was a really great read. And it was it was great to see, you know, women being taken seriously in, in major news publications, because often it's really hard to be thought of as more than a than a character in the show that's about gossip and, you know, women fighting and arguing and screaming at each other and creating fake drama, etc. So you should check it out. Yeah, I will, because I did actually watch that first season that she was on. And I remember being like, this is embarrassing for the Williams family. Um, She didn't seem like someone that was representing her, you know, grandfather very well in his legacy because she was, um, you know, quite ignorant to the civil rights struggles. Um, And so it's it's really exciting to see her kind of come into her own and to come into her family's legacy. But again, it could have been a character she was playing all along and it worked because she's still around and she's still on the show and doing other things. So um, yeah, that's a good one. All right. We cannot wrap up this tell me the hot gossip section without talking about the uh, Biden's VP pick in Kamala Harris. So that happened, I don't even know, maybe two days ago. What are your thoughts? How are, how... What, what what do we think about that? I mean, she wasn't my first choice, but I think we can still rock with her regardless. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I, as a black, I think as a black woman, I'm you know always excited to see uh, black women doing major things, and she's super smart and super prepared. And all of those things. And, you know, we're the Center for Women at Emory. We're not going to tell you how to vote or who we're voting for. But um, we're just talking about this in terms of, in general, right? Like, um, and I think that having someone like Kamala is exciting for the Democratic base or can excite a particular portion of the base. I think it's funny to see people more excited about her than Joe Biden. So (laughs) I see more, you know... Yeah, I think if you're gonna, (laughs) I think if you talk to the average, I would guess, I would wager that if you talk to the average, I think Democrat, uh, and you ask what they want on their T-shirt, it's it's probably going to be her name. I think. (laughs) I mean, if I were to put a sign on my lawn and pick between the two, I I would probably, I, 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 well, you can guess as a feminist who works at a women's center who's Canadian, yeah, (laughs) just just guess. I saw a meme that said, don't let Joe Biden distract you from the fact that we're voting for Joe Biden. (laughs) (laughs) 
already but, excited um, about the celebration from people that are Howard alums and also members of Alpha Kappa Alpha because it's going to be bananas if this comes to fruition. Like the celebration yeah, already the just from the nomination. <laughs> Chanel, that's not your sorority, is it? I'm very naive, very naive to what sorority is what because I am not from the U.S. And so, yes, let's not uh, make that mistake. It is not. Is that the pink and green one? Is it pink and green? That's the pink and yes. green one. But let okay. me tell that's you about one. my sorority at this moment. They're doing so much. <laughs> like, first of all, just I, the fact that y'all think we really beef with AKAs, the fact that y'all think that's real life, y'all bugged out. So like now we're unified, right? <laughs> now it's like, I've seen the thing today where it was like, here's the order that is going to go down at the inaugural ball. Um, AKAs, y'all get to dance to Flawless. That's y'all jam. But just so y'all know, when divas come on, y'all go get y'all a drink because that one belongs to us. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, they're really planning the inaugural ball for the Greek letter organizations as if she's the president like as if she will be the president <laughs> is this a thing again call me a naive canadian it, it, would there normally be an inaugural ball for the sororities and fraternities affiliated no. with the president no. and vice president it could be a thing honestly sororities never, and fraternities are so you know foreign to me there's never been one who has been affiliated like who actually pledged so like you have honorary membership i think um I think Michelle Obama holds honorary membership okay. with AKA, but it's it's open too. So she could also hold honorary membership with others. And um, I don't know about Barack if he's an honorary member. I, I actually have to think, I have to look into that, but she would be the first. Um, and so that's what the excitement is also. But I mean, is it a thing for the vice president to have multiple inauguration balls? Like, I think that's also the question. No idea. <laughs> I mean, there's a first time for everything. Like this is the first D9 that I'm aware of that's that will be in the White House if that happens. Well, it's only been one black person, like you know. You know, yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't, if it didn't happen with them, then like, yeah, and this would be the first, you know, HBCU graduate. Like there would be a lot. Mm -hmm. It may also be the first graduate of a state school too, in Joe Biden. Because it seems like everybody typically goes to Ivy League. So. Oh, wow. Um, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that's always made me nervous. I mean, Nixon went to Duke, but I mean, it's Duke. Um, yeah. I don't know where Reagan, Reagan may not have gone to college because he was an actor. But for the most part, they all come from Ivy League. So in terms of a ticket for the people, by the people, it gives the rest of us some hope and, and inspiration around what we can do. Because I'm not going to lie. I've been looking like, well, if you don't go to Ivy League, I guess you you really can't. can't um break down their door. But one of the things that I've seen from young people is, you know, this this is complicated. As a prison abolitionist myself, and in the midst of all the defund the police stuff, it is an interesting ticket. It is an interesting mm -hmm. ticket to think about some of the things that young people have been pushing for. And so some people are like that they're not going to vote. And you know, that that's a that's a decision and that's a that's a thing. But I'm wondering why y'all vote? Like what what takes you, what what makes you go to the polls when you go? And I know you're Canadian, Natalie, so it's a little bit different, but um, y'all vote. But yeah, what, you won't be voting in this election, but how, how, yeah, what motivates you to vote? I mean, it's weird. It's really weird not to be able to vote in this country because I'm a Canadian citizen. I'm not a U.S. citizen, but actually recently the Canadian laws changed such that it used to be if you were out of the country for more than five years and you weren't on like I think a student visa, um, 
you couldn't vote and that those rules have changed. And so this summer I actually applied to be on the international roster of voters, of Canadian voters. And so I'm, I'm waiting for the government to get back to me, but I'm, I'm excited to continue to be able to do that. And I think I, I vote in, in the last riding that I lived in, which is really important to me. It's a swing riding. Uh, you know, Canadian politics are really different because we're not a, a two-party nation. And um, a lot of Canadians don't, I think on average compared to Americans aren't party loyal in the same way. And so it's, it, it's harder to, to, to argue that, you know, your vote, I don't know. Anyway, that's all to say that I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to, and um, there are, there are no perfect choices. There are, is hypocrisy all around there. Sac- like, but at the same time, I think that some choices are worse than other choices and I, I would never, you know, even in the case where I'm, I'm in a swing riding where I grew up in Canada and I'm voting for, let's say, I would have voted for a liberal candidate instead of a new Democratic candidate, candidate which is an even further left party. That would probably be where I would be voting um, in terms of my allegiance. But, but I, I would probably make the decision to vote and vote strategically because, you know, I'm trying to think about... You know, I, I'm t- I think at the end of the day that there are, are no perfect choices and sometimes even difficult choices or choices that I would don't really want to have to make still need to be made. They still need to be made yeah. because some things are worse than other things, even if, you know, and so I don't know, I didn't really say that very articulately, but I, I think that sometimes it's really easy as for me as a progressive person to be like, well, it's all bad and it's all hypocrisy and it's all not good. Um, but some bad things are worse than other not so great or bad things. And, and, and so that's why I might continue to vote in an election where I I really am not excited to throw the t-shirt on. Like as a Canadian, I was wearing an Obama t-shirt. I remember I I bought an Obama t-shirt, you know, what is it? 12 years ago. I don't even remember 12, 11 years ago, you know, and I, we were energized about the U S election. I don't know that that's the case. I don't think that's the case right now for people who are voting similarly to how I would. So yeah, I don't know. Tia, what do you think? <laughs> um, I vote for many reasons. Um, first off is like, I'm really big on history. And so the fact of like, you know, this is year 2020. It's been a hundred years since women were given the right to vote. Not, you know, hey. other than white women. But, you know, a hundred years, like that's nothing. And then, you know, the Civil Rights Act of giving us the opportunity to vote as Black people has not even been that long ago. Um, So I think about, like, what it took to get this opportunity for myself and others to be here. And the fact that, like, my grandmother couldn't see a lot of this happen. Um, And then also, as I've gotten older, I've recognized, like, how much elections do for me personally. Um, And it's not just the presidency. So I vote in, like, local elections, too. Like my voice, my voice, my vote matters because it helps, you know, what's going to happen with the streets, what's going to happen with the schools, who gets money and what's being funded. Like all that matters to me. And I can't really complain about it if I'm not stepping up to the plate. And for me, not voting is also still a vote. You're just voting for someone else by not showing up. And so I never want that to be the case where someone else takes that power from me or makes a decision for me that I could have had some input in. Yeah, I think 
Very similar. I I actually try to give a lot of grace to people who choose not to vote just because of the communities that I'm from where, you know, you can be so, um, like, the can be in conditions of such abject poverty that who wins doesn't matter for, for your life on a day-to-day basis. Like, you can't really see the impact of it because regardless, you're still in the projects. Regardless, the police are still harassing you. Regardless, you still got to go stand in the welfare line to get food stamps. And so it is really hard to, you know, tell those people, you should vote, you should vote because like, seriously, no matter who's been in charge, they haven't seen a real material change in their lives. Um, And I just want to hold space for that. It's hard. And I think what's different now is that in the past, those voices were so um, subaltern, like they were so, you know, we couldn't hear them. Um, And so a lot of people didn't even know that they existed. But now with Facebook, it has democratized that piece, that voice. And so we're seeing those voices and we don't really know how to deal with it. Um, But I think people not voting is a structural problem and things that like the parties need to figure out. The parties need to figure out how do you mobilize these people and how do you actually create change? Thinking of them, we always talk about the middle class, but what about the poor of the poor? Like what are policies that can actually impact um, their lives? Um, and I and I think that in, in some ways the right has kind of figured that out and that's why they sent the checks with Donald Trump's name on it. I think he's trying to say, you know, I'm put, I put money in, in your hands in a way that you feel like it's tangible. So anyway, that's just a personal thing that I've been struggling with in terms of like, how do I get my people? Those are my people. How do I get my people on board? But I also vote because, you know, I I just listened to the Girl Trek episode with Fannie Lou Hamer and all the ways that she was, you know, threatened for trying to vote. And there's just a piece of me that's like, well, if y'all don't, if y'all do all this to try to get us not to do it, then it must be really damn powerful. Um, Just the the amount of voter, voter suppression. But I do think you know, I don't know how much energy we need to put into vote, vote, vote. Um, I think we need to put much more into ending voter suppression because like everybody could go to the polls. But if you if your vote doesn't count, then, then what is that? Yeah, Natalie. Yeah. And then and also I think what you're saying, too, is like the way it circulates on social media and really the way any sort of kind of movement or thing that everyone thinks we should do or trying to get you to do circulates on social media, it's often really shamey or they turn you into a meme or they mock you or they tell you you're stupid, et cetera. And that just doesn't work, not to quote Dr. Phil, but how's that working for us? How's that working for people (laughs) who want people to be vaccinated? How's that working for people who want other people to wear masks? It sometimes, you know, sometimes shame works to some degree, but for for a lot of people, it, it doesn't it doesn't really compel them. And so, you know, so so many of the tools or the rhetoric that is so familiar to us because we all live online and we especially live online right now. It's, we, we got to rethink it because I'm, I'm not going to compel you by telling you you're stupid for not voting or, you know, like what the hell are you thinking? Not voting. Like it's, 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 it's gotta be a different approach, I think, because it's it doesn't acknowledge at all the reasons why people aren't or can't vote or don't want to, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't even speak to any of that. It doesn't address any of that. It just shaves people, I guess. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, as folks in an academic institution, there is a rise in anti-intellectualism. And I think that that's a problem that we need to be gearing ourselves up to, to solve. 
And I don't know how, but that's where I think our energy needs to be. So, okay. Well, that's the end of our hot topics. Tell us the hot gossip section. And we are going to move into our actual topic of the day. It's time for our couch conversation. Um, so today's topic of the day is, um, well, actually, I'm going to let Natalie <laughs> introduce it. Yeah. Um, well, we're talking about uh, F having it all. Yeah. I mean, so when we were coming up with the topic of the day, we were talking with the students we work with. And I mean, this comes up all of the time in like every organization we work with, like student organization we work with. Um, and especially as a women's center, you know, we get tapped to speak on women's issues across the campus and, you know, in the city, et cetera, in the wider community. And f- you know, we really can't get away from the topic of women having it all, uh, which is sometimes couched in the language of like um, work-life balance. Can women have it all? This question that we are kind of plagued by. And I think to get us started, you know, first, when we first started talking about this conversation, um, we realized that we all have really different perspectives in terms of our family setups and our arrangements in terms of like how we live our lives. Because so often the conversation, when you think about having it all, it involves children. And so I know that, um, you know, we all have different familiar arrangements. I don't know if you all want to share your situation. So I don't have children. I'm, I am partnered and, but Chanel and uh, reminded me that I'm what they call a dink, D-I-N-K, which is dual, <laughs> dual income, no kids. I've heard that before too. <laughs> so yeah, I, we have cats, but they're annoying. But And they uh, travel to Italy when they feel yeah. like it. And, yeah. you know, I have gardens and miniature dollhouses and just, you know, <laughs> live this really interesting You had to bring up the life. miniature dollhouse that I made. I just love it yeah. so much. And Natalie will show us in our Zoom meeting. She'll be like, look, y'all. Look at my carrot. Look at my table. Look at the table I built. It has lights. Look, lights. And I'm like, show me the lights. Nobody bothers it's just you. just a glory. <laughs> and then for me, um, yeah, so I'm straight. I'm married. I have a husband. I have two kids um, and a career, right? So in so many ways, I probably look the traditional part of what it means to have it all. And then Tia. And I. And I am a single person, identifies queer, and I'm chilling here with my two dogs. So no dink life for me. Um, <laughs> so yeah, most people would think like I'm still waiting for something to happen to, you know, probably complete my circle or something, but I don't see it in that way. So why do you think we're so obsessed with this question? I mean, just the amount that would were in for which like our center and we as I guess quote unquote experts in this field are tapped to to lead this conversation, to have this conversation. Students want to know about it. Why are why do you think we're so obsessed or, you know, yeah, with the question of can women have it all? Yeah. I mean, cause yeah, if it's not that, then it's work-life balance. <laughs> like, like it's just always like this kind of thing. And and I'm curious too, why, why, are, why are we so obsessed? And, you know, knowing that this is a topic that students wanted us to cover also just as like, well, damn, at what point do we become obsessed with this? 18, 
16, 20, like what, what is the age that we really start pressuring ourselves? I think it's the expectations that we see on TV shows. Like I grew up with the Cosby show and seeing Claire Huxtable, who was a career woman, a lawyer with five kids and a beautiful house in a brownstone in Brooklyn and a husband who also was careered, like that we get these ideas of what it means to have it all at the same time you know, um, that feminist ideals of women being outside of, of the home and having fulfilling lives outside of the home. So it's like, we want that. Who doesn't want that? We want to be able to use our gifts for, um, for gainful employment, but we're supposed to also still want the house and the kids and the yard and the puppy, you know? So I kind of think it's media representations that are also conflicting with, goals of feminism or, or perceived goals of what, what feminism is about. I see it in the media as well. Like there's always some coming of age story where someone finds their true love and they automatically get married. There's no like, let me live my life before I make this big commitment kind of thing. But I think it also definitely appears in like your family life. Um, mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how many times in my twenties, I was asked, were you going to get married and have some kids? Mm. And then it became like, as I got older into my twenties, like the whole marriage part was not even as as important as having children. Right. It became more about like, this was the thing that needed to complete my life was like, I needed to have a child. And so even more and more as I got into like women's issues and women's center work and stuff like that, like I thought about, how my success is not defined by motherhood. Mm. I don't think that my fulfillment as a woman has to be centered on having a child. I do think that I would like to be a mother at some point, but I don't think that if I do or don't, that my life has not had it all, you know? And I actually think studies have shown that women who don't want to have children and don't have children are just as happy and satisfied as women who want to have children and have them. So this idea that the only way you can be satisfied is by passing on your DNA or something like that, or giving your life, you know, having this little figure to mold and shape in the way that you want, it actually it doesn't work like that. Women who don't want kids and don't have them are are just as satisfied. Now it's when you have kids that you don't want or you want kids and you don't have them where we start to see some, you know, dissatisfaction. But for, for the many women who are like, I'm good on that, actually, um, they're they're happy. So like what you're saying makes sense, but that pressure is interesting that that's, that's what success means as a woman. It almost seems to like the trope or, or when you think about having that conversation, like some image comes to mind where this, you know, somebody, there's a woman and she's in a power suit and she's throwing a donut in her kid's mouth as she's running off to a meeting and then, you know, and ferrying her kids over to, to, to daycare and trying to make it home in time. And then one of them gets, you know, it's like this image of this kind of, of this total chaos that women are trying to get uh, under control. Mm-hmm. And in a way it really, and, and and that and conversations about work-life balance for me often, I think, really depoliticize conversations. They take sexism. They take a lack of yeah. um, 
uh, of care that women have a double duty of labor out of the equation. And they, it's really about you managing your life and kind of getting it together, which I think is really, really unfair because if I had a, a, a free public daycare down the street with mm-hmm. quality care and I had the flexibility to leave work when I needed to for appointments that, you know, that some people do, some people do have work arrangements and childcare arrangements that are like that. But by and large, you know, people, you know, stay home unpaid for three weeks and then have to go back to work after giving birth to a child. You know, I, I think it really takes politics out of the equation and it takes institutional sexism out of the equation in ways that really only function to put more pressure, I think, on uh, working parents, particularly mothers. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of what I think about when, when I think about work-life balance. My eyes sometimes often roll back into my head because I think, you know, how do I have all these balls in the air and uh, execute this all flawlessly? And it's all on me, you know, and they're like, ask for help, but that help is $1,200 a month or just just ask for help, you know, or it's like, have a glass of wine. Like as if a glass of wine is going to, you know, or taking some yoga class. I think yoga is probably work up. I'm, I'm not a yoga person. I, I cannot do yoga. <laughs> but I, I do think that like it, it puts individual pressure on things that are structural and then, you know, blames us for our stress and trying to really manage a fulfilling life, right? Whatever that may mean for us. And, the, and these are questions that, yeah, people of means, you know, the more money you have, the, the more you can have it all, right? Because if you can have somebody come in to clean the house and that's something you don't have to do or have someone who's doing the laundry or someone who's pick a nanny who's picking up the kid, then you can focus on work and also know that your kids are getting enrichment. Or if you had a school system, you know, that also had like some schools have really cool after school programs that you don't, you send your kid to school, they stay to five o'clock and they're going to do tennis lessons and art lessons and music lessons all right there for free. Whereas other schools don't have that. Um, and, and maybe the only way your kid can participate is through sports. Um, and then only a, a certain amount of sports. So I, I do think that there are some structural things and then women take the pressure. And I think that's deliberate. I think it's, I think it's a backlash against, um, I think it's a backlash against feminism, to be perfectly honest. So if you were to like turn this question on its head or give it a feminist spin um, and take away kind of the, not negative connotations, but the, the the reactions that you may have as a feminist to this question of like, can women have it all? Like what, what would, what is that kind of having it all? What is that kind of contentment for you? That's a hard question. That is a hard question. One of y'all want to go first? I got to think for a second. (laughs) I think I can do it. I think I can do it. Okay. So um, for me, feminism has actually really saved me from even putting that kind of pressure on myself to have it all. I don't even, I think the answer is no. And I think it's like, do I even want to have it all? What do I want? Right? Like what, what gives me fulfillment? And the truth of the matter is, I've, I I do get a lot of fulfillment from being a mom and it was something that I always kind of knew I wanted to do, but something I try to be real clear about, even, even with my children is that I also had a life 
before them, a very nice, good, happy, fulfilling life. And so I like my career and it brings me joy. And so I don't have a lot of, I don't have any guilt in, in that way of like, oh, um, I work outside of the home. Uh, statistics help. They say that working mothers today spend more time with their children than stay at home mothers did in the 70s. Um, that's, that's fascinating to me. And it is because we're shuffling them to all of these different, pri- like we, we're putting these expectations on ourselves that I think stay at home mothers in the 70s were like, go play go outside and play. <laughs> and they were like in the house <laughs> doing their own thing, maybe with their cigarettes. Um, <laughs> like that's what I imagine. But like we spend more time now. And so like that helps. And so I focus more on quality time than trying to spend a lot of time. And I bring my kid. And then there, there, there's that too. Like this, this myth of a work-life balance that's got blown up now because <laughs> I'm in my son's room as I record this. But um the myth, it's never been like that for me. I'd always, you know, take a little bit of work home. I might be, you know, doing a little work at ballet lessons, but also bring my kids to work. Um, and so I just try more to think about what it is I want and fulfillment, but I, but that's not to say I'm free from any pressure. It's, it's like, even though on the surface, it looks like I'm finding a way to have it all. I do sometimes wonder, am I doing enough as a mom? Am I, did, did I get it right? There is that, that guilt that there is something that um, I'm not providing my children that, that I should be, but I just try to really fight it with like, I think feminism is about freedom. And I don't think that we're supposed to live our lives feeling super guilty about, you know, working or choosing, choosing to, to be home with our kids or be, be with our partners or, or not do it and be, be single. And last thing, I know I'm rambling, but I also think that we need uh, to do a better job of having representations of fulfilling lives that don't look like the stereotypical woman having it all. And I remember there was a photo series that showed this like woman living alone and her life just looks so great. Like she had like hair in the bathroom and she was like doing little art with it and like (laughs) sitting like in her sitting in on her couch eating ice cream with no pants on like i think we just need more representations of what what other versions of lives for women that are fulfilling look like yeah and also i guess there's an assumption too that there's like some fulfillment and then that uh, like by uh, certain pieces uh, or components like a partner or partners or like children or dependents in your life and then that's static but for a lot of people and a lot of women that 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 changes kids grow up and they leave or uh people you know end relationships and you know and i i don't think the question of like balancing work and life ends just because you're not a nuclear family and 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 that nuclear families don't stay nuclear families either and yeah, that was my final thought. <laughs> um, I think, I don't know. I think about what makes me happy and that's been my driving goal. It's not necessarily to have it all. I just want to be happy in my life that I have. Um, and so I do combat the pressures that come with like certain age stuff constantly. But for me, like, I guess I always now do think like a feminist, like I think about would 
the same questions be posed to a man that are posed to me. Um, and, you mm-hmm. know, people want to give Ben mm-hmm. cookies for being caregivers at home or doing mm-hmm. all these other things when women automatically do it majority of the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I just, I don't know. I think I've just come to the point where there's a lot that I've gained in the years that I have under my belt where I can't let society or family pressure tell me what having it all or what success looks like for me. Mm-hmm. I love it, Tia. I, I completely agree. I used to have a child. It was called my dissertation. And oh, remember that. When I, when oh I gave God. birth to that book and closed that chapter of my life, there was so much time. And at first I thought, okay, I'm just like filling the time with hobbies. Like I picked up piano, I picked up gardening, I picked up uh, more bread, like, making. Uh, bread making. I became really yeah. at cooking and, and that kind of stuff. Miniature dollhouses. Miniature dollhouses. <laughs> maybe not the miniature dollhouses. That's more a distraction. But the but the other <laughs> things that I would relegate to the world of hobbies, I don't, they're not hobbies. Like how I cook and prepare meals and tend to a garden. Those are more than just things that fill time because I don't have a toddler running around my house. That's not how I look at it. it I'm not trying to distract myself from something that I don't have. I'm. It's an integral part of my life. And for me, caring for people is is doing things like cooking for them, giving them the tomatoes I have from the backyard. And it's a different kind of care. It's a different kind of community, right? I'm not plugged into my local school or a daycare or something like that, but I am plugged into community in other ways. And the ways in which, you know, I give and receive care with friends, I think is, is part of, if I were to reclaim work-life balance, it's part of that balance. It's, 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 I, um, that work-life balance means that like if some should something arise with a friend or a person in my life, I, I could drop everything and and go to them and help them as they have done for me, you know, to some extent, obviously, maybe there's some big work event or something like that. But that's more about how that conversation goes that, you know, those other relationships, they're as important to me as, as a child. You know, they may not depend on me like a child would, but, um, you yeah. know. So um, we could probably talk about this topic all day um, and we have a lot to say. And so um, go to our Instagram um, under the post that we'll put for the for the podcast. And if there are other things around this that you'd like us to to talk about, chat with us and, and let us know. And the three of us will come back and do a part two if that's what you need. Uh, I should probably ask the CWE. Um, But we're going to head to our final segment, which is Ask the CWE, and you can submit questions to us for this segment, again, over at our Instagram, at EmeryCWE, or on Twitter, or you can just email us at cwe.emery.edu and submit questions that you would like someone from the Center for Women to answer. All right. So for today's question, Tia, what we got? So we had a question come in about problematic parentals. The question is, I'm quarantining at my parents' home and they are incredibly conservative, whereas I'm very progressive, so things are tense. I feel like I have no personal space, no freedom, and my dream of finishing college in Atlanta is over. On the best days, I feel like I need to figure out how to make best of things at home, but on the worst days, I just wanna sleep my life away and never leave my bedroom. How do I deal with being home? and get through the semester in one piece. Whew, the layers, child. 
That's rough. <laughs> rough, yeah. rough, rough. I mean, I had this similar situation, definitely not quarantine level, when I went home for the first summer after my freshman year and never went home ever again to like stay for a long period of time. Um, I had become the person that I thought I was better than everybody. I think different than everybody um, on holidays. I'm the one that calls out problematic language, things like that. So it's very tense in certain situations. Um, I would tell this person that I think the more you stand your ground or have conversations that are problematic and difficult, that it gets easier over time. Um, mm-hmm. It may be seen as disrespectful at first to challenge something that your parents may say or be in their house and say something that's against what they believe. But I think that everybody has a right to their own opinion. Um, And I think that people's opinions didn't just come there, you know, with no foundation whatsoever. So for me, um, I know that it took a long time for me to be able to have my own opinion when it came to my, my mom. And so I just think that it gets better over time. The quarantine has no real end right now. So it's definitely going to be hard trying to figure out what's the best for this new situation. Yeah, my reaction is like, I I can really empathize with thinking or feeling really stuck. And it's compounded not only because you're isolated, because you have no one in close proximity, maybe who you can connect with, and you had this dream for this year and how it was supposed to go. And that dream isn't a reality. And we don't know even what, what life is going to look like a year from now. But I think, I think if you have any reserves or any energy to spend time dreaming and planning what life looks like for one year, that it can offer like that fantasy, you know, and that dream can provide so much that helps you get out of bed every day. um, That helps you find a reason to keep going. And that reminds you that this is temporary. It's real. It feels really long in the moment, but it is temporary. And whether it means like putting things into motion now, even if it's just researching or even if it's just fantasizing, like in a year from now, I want to be here. And and maybe your dream is to, I don't know, go so, to go to another country. And and maybe it, do, it doesn't end up being another country. It, it's literally just a city that's an hour away. You know, it might not work out like that. But I think planting seeds to whatever capacity you can now will help you imagine what comes next. And that really will change your perspective, I would think, on the day-to-day. It has for me on the day-to-day. So like, so so some really terrible thing that your your mother says that day, it, it might not sting as much if you're like, you know what, a year from now, I'm not going to be here. And I'm not going to be doing this. And I'm not going to be listening to this comment. And I'm not going to have to respond to it. And I feel like that that could give you, for me, it would probably give me so much. I, I think when you're when you're lying in bed and you can't get up and it feels like it feels like so heavy to do anything because you feel so stuck. Lie down and dream about what that year could be like. I don't know if that's a little foo-foo, but you know, hold on to a dream. And I will say, I'm I'm thinking about 
the conservative part and what it means to be a college student who has radically different ideas from your parents. And I think what I would tell you in a typical year where you're just going home for Thanksgiving is, yeah, lay them out. <laughs> Let them know how you feel and stand up for your views. But the fact that you're stuck there actually does um, shape what I what I would what I would say. I think you're going to need to maintain outside relationships and like where places like the lounge at the CWE was a place for a lot of students who can come and talk about politics that are connect. You know, a FIA meeting might be a place where you can share your viewpoints in 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 good community, and you know you can have conversations with folks who are progressive, debates within that. And now you're home and you're actually having to debate people who are conservative and you, you're gonna you're gonna need a place where your where your other people are. Um, I also agree that these things get better with practice. And so you can think about this time as sharpening that that critique. So at first it hurts because you're not at college with people who think like you. And so you're trying the same skills that you maybe use in a classroom and your parents are like, that's stupid. What are you talking about? And then you want to cry or you're getting frustrated because, you know, that that's that level of debate or how do you persuade someone to get on your side? It, it's different when you don't have facts or things that we talked about earlier. Right. Like sometimes persuading people via evidence, it just doesn't work. You got to find another way. But the more you do it, the better you'll, you'll you'll get. So I think for your own mental health, you need spaces where your people are. And to also remind yourself that it really, you don't have to be your parents' teachers. There are things that maybe the world can teach them. And you can maybe see yourself as like planting a seed, you know, that says, actually, I believe that Black lives do matter and here's why. And then stepping back from it, you know, and seeing if maybe they'll get it somewhere else, or maybe they'll end up being dragged on social media for saying some of these points. You, I don't know. Um, but I do think that it's important for for you to to keep that in mind that like you don't have like that's not labor that you necessarily need to take on right now. They're your parents for the rest of the, of your life, their life, wh whatever whoever dies first. I don't know. This is getting weird, but um, that you have a long <laughs> relationship. Who dies first? <laughs> And that's when the parenting relationship ends. But um, either way, uh, this this does, in the middle of this quarantine, you know, these aren't battles that you have to fight. Now, if it's about who you are, right, then th that that is different. Um, and there may be a point where you do have to think about is this is this so bad that I need to leave? Can I go quarantine at my auntie's house? at um, a cousin's house, at another friend's house. Like that, that is something that you may have to consider. Do you actually need to have a plan uh, to go? Um, so that's pretty much my advice. Um, uh, if others have advice, again, we'd love to hear it in, on the comment section of um, on our social media. So let us know. But that wraps up our show. I want to end with a quote, one of the books that we use at the Center for Women is This Bridge Called My Back, Writings by Radical Women of Color. So I actually want to end this week's session um, with a quote from that book. And the quote is, a theory in the flesh means one where the physical realities of our lives, our skin color, the land or concrete we grew up on, our sexual longings, all fuse to create a politic born of necessity. And that is by Cherie Moraga. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. See you next week.
Bye.